You take the manuscript back to the world for me. That's what you do. What I do? You are what I write. Like this town. It wasn't here before I wrote it. And neither were you. No. I know what's real. I know what I am. And nobody pulls my strings. Did you think my agent attacked you by accident? He read about you. In there. He knew you'd bring it back and start the change. Make what's happened here happen everywhere. Try to stop you. I'm not a piece of fiction. I think therefore you are. Read it if you don't believe me. See what I have in store for you. You're listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, and welcome back to your favorite podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where Every week, we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me as fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And guys, he was here, but he aggressively said he wanted to see my supervisor. And I'm like, Reed, you are my supervisor as far as this thing goes. So see yourself out the door. I'm sure I'll be back. In the meantime, allow me to welcome you listeners into a brand new mega series. <laughs> I really need some backing echo there. Uh, I'll get our producer to throw that in the edit. Um, it is Stranger Things season again, and the citizens of Hawkins are once more captivating audiences' attention and more of their time than ever before. So we wanted to spend our summer covering films and filmmakers that influenced the show beginning today with a four-part series highlighting four films in the next four weeks from the manic and mad mind of one Mr. John Carpenter. Constant listeners may recall us discussing the works of old JC way back in 2016, and we are thrilled to give this master of horror another round of coverage in the fog. Last week, the quarterly queens assembled to journey into the catacombs with the film As Above, So Below. So thank you, Asia and Vera, for that conversation. Lovely as always. But today, in this patron-voted series, that's right, this series and almost all the series we're covering this year are voted on by our patrons. Join them, and you too can vote on the films we're covering this year. Today, 
We will be covering the 1995 Ode to Book Banning, which would fit right in with 2022 America in the mouth of madness. But before we crack open Sutter Kane's latest offering, allow me to welcome back to the show the one and only Fear of God legal counsel, the Fog's favorite Canadian named Dave Courtney. It is Dave Courtney. Welcome back to the show, Dave. Why, thank you. It is a pleasure to see you, my friend. I was just, I was just in your lovely country a couple weeks ago. Uh, not totally by, not totally voluntarily, uh, at least for the amount of time I was there. I waved at you from, from Toronto. <laughs> 20, Toronto. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. kilometers away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what that distance means, but welcome back regardless. <laughs> real, real, real quick, Dave. Hey, finish the book so you can tell me how it ends or just watch the movie adaptation. Either way, I'm going to remind listeners that here at the Fear of God, we explore. We don't explain. Except for right now when I explain that you can find every fog and fear of God thing imaginable at thefearofgodpodcast.com. Things like how to support us on Patreon, essays, team bios, episode archives, merchandise. Reed, you're here. <laughs> Whoa. You came in like a Muppet. <laughs> I was trying to uh, uh, intone the manic laughter that, that Sam Neill uh, sort of oh. indulges in mm. in, in, in yeah, the final yeah, yeah. scene of the film. And uh, yeah. I don't think I quite got Spoiler there. Spoiler alert. I, I, gave, I gave it the uh, the old college try. So. You did. The old, uh, yeah. the old lack of go for it. Um, Reed, Dave's here. <laughs> Dave. Dave's here. Hey, man, Hi. it's good to see you as always. So Thank happy you. to see you. What's really um, funny is my audio just dropped out because S-I-R-I decided that they wanted to speak to me. So I was like, what just happened? So yeah, but I'm, I ho hopefully uh, nothing monumental just was exchanged between the two of you. Um, no. It was a know, private moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's, let's do this. Let's go to the patron mobile and then we're going to come back in and let Dave oh. tell us what he's been watching, reading or listening to. So ah. ladies and gentlemen, friends and foggers, stay tuned for your patron segment of the first episode of Stranger Things Season 4. To the Patron Mobile! In my head... I know. In my head, I heard the Benny Hill music. Yeah. No, no. Now about this movie. But before we get to this movie, Dave, you are a man of letters. You read, you watch, you listen. And it's been a minute since I've gotten to see your lovely face. Beard's looking good, you know. Um, I received that as homage and affection. Um, <laughs> uh, Dave, tell us something um, after this little ditty. What you watching? What you reading? What you listening to? That you've been watching, reading, and listening to. I was just giving Reed the cue to drop in the music there. That's, that's <laughs> <appreciated>. <laughs> hey, what you got for us, brother? 
Well, um, it's a book that I'm actually on the last uh, 20 pages of. So all right, <laughs> I'm. Uh, so there's still time it. for it to go sideways. That, that is true. That is true. <laughs> I have full confidence, though, that this is going to stick to landing. But it's been a while since I had delved into anything um, fiction related. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction, and I decided it was time to get back into a good fiction story. So I picked mm. up a book by author named V.E. Schwab. It's called Gallant, or Gallant, G-A-L-L-A-N-T. And um, I have just been really enjoying it. It's been hard to put down. It's been um, just a, a, a fun ride. Uh, I'd say it's a, a young adult novel. So a YA novel um, fits into that uh, kind of genre. Um, it's got a lot of horror notes, actually. So it might be intriguing to Fear of God listeners. Um, awesome. Yeah, it follows a, an orphan girl who um, she gets a letter suddenly asking her to come back um, home. And uh, this is actually over and against um, uh, a letter of caution not to return home. So we follow her as she makes this decision wow. and figure out why um, these things are sitting in tension. And yeah, it's just a really good story. It moves really quick and um but I've just been really enjoying a lot of the themes and delves into like the shadow world and, and uh, dreams and things like that. So yeah, a lot to like. That's awesome. So I have a quick question because that's, that actually sounds really exciting. Is it a part of a series or is it, or do you know if it's part of a series yet? Cause I know you, you're, not, you're most of the way through it. Yeah, not yet. Um, okay. Not that I'm aware of. It's a standalone movie or <laughs> book <laughs> for as, uh, as far as I know anyway. I, it sounds really intriguing. Could you cite the, uh, I know it's Gallant or, or, or Gallant. Uh, could you cite the author again? Yeah. Uh, V.E. Schwab. Nice. Cool. That sounds really interesting. I actually might have to check that out myself. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Uh, where did you find it? Uh, I just randomly bought it at a bookstore. Oh, <laughs> man. I love it. I love it. That's one of my favorite pastimes is to peruse the bookshelves and try to try to find some hidden treasure. My favorite recent find of that, not, not for nothing, was Andy Weir's novel, The Martian. Long before the film starring Matt Damon, I, I found that book just perusing through the shelves. I was like, The Martian, I love science fiction. What's this about? And then I just picked it up. And, and you were disappointed oh. when you realized it wasn't about Marvin? <laughs> not quite. That book, by the way, oh man, if you ever get to, if you were slightly disappointed uh, or thought the the movie was a bit shruggish the matt damon starring ridley scott directed film that novel is excellent it is outstanding i have never read a more thrilling bit of science fact and fiction uh, in my life it is it is so propulsive and incredible and i love that novel um well, that was that was your watcher no 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 come on now um <laughs> so um I do have one thing since I'm already blabbering away that I'll, that I'll mention. And then Nathan, you can close this out. Um, so I don't know why I slept on this show for so long because second only to um, horror, I would say probably my favorite genre. Well, science fiction gives it a, a, a tight run for its money. Um, but on any given day, my pick for second favorite genre would be Western. I love Westerns. I, I really, really am very affectionate, specifically to like the more revisionist Westerns of the last, you know, 40, 50 years, as opposed to, although I do love some of the classics from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 
Uh, most of my favorites are the more, the more modern revisionist Westerns, but I love them. Absolutely love them. And I had never yet checked out the show Deadwood. Have either of you watched Deadwood? Mm. Or, or oh, you're heading towards it? Yellowstone, but no, I haven't seen either. No, 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 no. I, uh, not for nothing. My wife and I are, are in season one of Yellowstone because everybody and their brother's talking about it, but too early for me to assess exactly how I feel about it. But um, Deadwood uh, is brief. It's only three seasons. And then... They had a film. There was a, it was long listed for like more than a decade as like a show that should not have been canceled or was canceled too soon. Um, it didn't quite get the viewership that HBO wanted. So at the end of the third season, they wrapped it up in a very largely unsatisfying way for people who wanted conclusion to the show. So a lot of fan energy, a lot of, hey, we got to make this happen. HBO agreed to fund a, a two-hour film that would permit them to appropriately close off the show and i gotta tell i i was completely surprised at how engrossed i became in this tv series i love westerns i knew that it had received a lot of praise um but the characters in this the situations i i was completely caught up in it and i absolutely loved it if you are a at all a remote fan of of western storytelling uh it is deadwood was a a true historical town um, that was in the late 19th century. Um, and it was a town as the series depicts with no laws because it was not yet a part of any sort of federal government or anything. So basically they kind of are all following their own honor code to a degree. And you have all of these different characters who try to navigate their way through that, trying to make a name for themselves, trying to prospect gold, trying to sell goods and services. You of course have brothels and uh, saloons and you have all these other things that are kind of playing on itself um and uh, and i'll cite these three things uh j- just in in sort of pitch of the series one caution and then i'm done so the three things to kind of pitch it there are some car- the performances writ large are outstanding i gotta give some love to timothy oliphant is is kind of the main protagonist of the show if you're gonna have one and of course timothy oliphant is is outstanding pretty much anything i've ever seen him in um Brad Dourif plays a doctor and in a town where everybody pretty much has nefarious motives and has uh, ulterior agendas going on. uh, The doctor is by and large, he's got some little quirks along the way, but by and large is a benevolent, genuinely caring individual who is also salty and has an attitude like he's very confident and of himself but he genuinely wants to see people do well and be healthy and everything. And, and I love, and Brad Dourif does so well with that character. Um, so you got kind of the, the, the complicated good guy in Timothy Oliphant. You've got the complicated benevolent doctor in Brad Dourif. And then you also have Ian McShane, who plays arguably the primary antagonist of the piece. He's a very manipulative saloon owner who has his hands in basically every sort of concoction that this western town can come up with um ian mcshane is one of the most just infectious villains to watch that i've seen in any in any piece western or otherwise ian mcshane is masterful at being this villain that you're like this is a bad man who does terrible things and every time he's on screen i am glued he is electric in this i didn't look up to see if he won any emmy consideration or anything but he is incredible in this uh the writing is outstanding sharp plotting sharp characterization the one major caution i would give is i think 
and as you can imagine with HBO, the content is pretty rough. There is some violence, although not as much as you might expect. Um, there is quite a bit of, uh, of sexuality here and there uh, scattered throughout the series. But, but I think they still, at the time, they held some version of record for uses of the F word where uh, basically like uh, the, the, it was no- notable enough that even in an HBO show, they were like, yeah, you guys use the F word a lot. Like, is that really period accurate <laughs> like, for them to use that that much? It, I think there was something like they, they said on average through the run of the show, uh, the F word appears on average twice every minute and that for every minute of footage it appears at least twice and that is including the stretches of footage where nobody says anything (laughs) like taking all that together it appears on average twice per minute so you got to be okay with that or you are not going to have a good time with this series but if that's not too big of a problem for you and you like westerns and you love strong characterizations i uh i give my huge stamp to deadwood i was impressed i was i checked it out almost as a you know curiosity after all this time and I love it. I, I think Deadwood's amazing. It's an incredible show. So yeah, hmm. Deadwood. Cool. I'm 10 years late uh, to the party, but yeah. I think it was a little longer than that, but yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I will cite a book. So uh, like you, Dave, um, I tend to dabble heavily in the nonfiction to to the oppression of my spirit sometimes. <laughs> um, and so in the spirit of that, uh, I read my best friend's exorcism by, <laughs> by Grady <laughs> Hendrix, um, uh, recently was traveling and checked out or actually purchased three books on Kindle so I could have them to read. That was the only one I did start to finish. And this is my third Grady Hendrix book. And, um, you know, uh, he has been a guest on the show before, which is awesome. And hopefully will be again at some point, but he's just really good at what he does um of these three i've read you know they are just kind of light on their feet um have some nice kind of pop cultural sensibilities to them but just do really well what they do um you 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 know at this point three books in for myself i would imagine this is relatively similar across the board but maybe not um you know unlike unlike our favorite uncle stevie Grady kind of knows when to get out, right? You know, it's like, okay, that was was just the right length of book. Um, Doesn't overstay as welcome. Um, But no, I really enjoyed my best friend's exorcism. Um, It, yeah, I liked it a lot. And um, that's what I read most recently. I, uh, I'm not going to say much more than you did, but I would also give my stamp of approval. Loved my best friend's exorcism. I thought it was really, really fun. Really great. Yep. Loved that book. And that has been... So now about this movie, (laughs) we're in a new Carpenter series for, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to give maybe, you know, 30 seconds of love to how fun it has been to just go back to the work of John Carpenter. I just think that it was so the, as you mentioned going into it, that like the very first series that we ever did on the show was a series of four films on John Carpenter. We talked about The Fog. We talked about They Live. We talked about The Thing. And we talked about the first Halloween. And since then, we, except for 
winks and nods to you know Halloween season of the witch, which he was uh, in, involved in, uh, and then also uh, the new Halloween film. Uh, we haven't really talked about the work of John Carpenter. As I was watching, and I started with In the Mouth of Madness, which which the series is starting with. As I watched that. Um, and then I watched next week's film. I was just like, I'm just going to bust out all of my John Carpenter films. I just thought I, I love the guy. It's been like five, six years since I've seen these films and I, I enjoy them so much. And so I just, I started watching a bunch of other ones. And so I'm really, really excited. So how I want to start, uh, this conversation because listeners who heard the first series, uh, back when we didn't realize what was good radio and what wasn't, um, I did this big, long, like <laughs> biography of John Carpenter, uh, when we did that series. So definitely not going to redo that right now. Back before Reed knew what was good radio and what wasn't. Um, I'm sorry. Wh- go ahead. Wow. <laughs> wow. It's just, <laughs> it's just like one of those things like, oh, you know what? Maybe we made some missteps. And Nathan's like, uh, you were, you missed <laughs> You mis- that was you that was your call <laughs> i had not to do with it no it's true <laughs> so, um but no i would like to hear and dave i'm coming to you first um your exposure to uh, affection or lack thereof for the work of john carpenter and then uh after sharing a little bit about that um had you seen this film before uh and and what was the kind of the experience watching this film so take it away your exposure to john carpenter and then lead into this film <laughs> that's uh that's that's pretty easy on my front because it, it's a whole lot of blind spots <laughs> 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 including uh when you when you sent me the list of, of films that we were possibly covering um they were all blind spots so i was <laughs> basically kind of coming in fresh all right looking over um his filmography and and trying to get a sense of I mean, I still don't have a great sense of what kind of movies he does, but um, mm. yeah, this this particular one, which no, I had not seen before. Um, it's like the plot synopsis just caught my eye. I thought maybe it sounded mm. like something that would be up my alley. Yeah, and uh, definitely, definitely can say that that turned out to be true. <laughs> awesome! Nice. Awesome. Yeah. I'm glad now, to hear that. Forgive the stupid question, Dave, but have you seen Halloween? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Those uh, I have seen. Um, how many Halloween films are there? So there are there are like twelve Halloween 12. films right now. But that Carpenter was directly involved in only the first three as a a producer slash writer, <laughs> and really the third one he's really only a producer. Um, and then he came back to compose the score and be a producer on the new trilogy that Jamie Lee Curtis is doing. The rest he oh, was yeah. not involved in. So. Okay, so that is my 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 scope of familiarity. There is is <laughs> the first one and the two reboots. So or the ah, continuation, gotcha. I should say. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Did you read? I, I literally, I think it was just today that I saw a poster released for for ends that was pretty yeah. sweet looking. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the man. skull, very, the kind of mm-hmm. the kind yes. of burned up skull look. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I'm very excited for it. I'm more fond of Halloween kills than I think most people are. It's still, I still acknowledge it has some big problems, but um, I'm more fond of it in general than I think uh, most people are. So I'm super excited for ends. I just, Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I thought you said then it deserves, but yes, then most people are too. I'm sorry. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You know, listeners don't realize that I prefaced this conversation. by saying I was salty and Nathan's like, hold my beer. (laughs) 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 No, I just, you know, every now and then you just call a spade a spade. And it's not a very good movie. Wow. Um, Wow. 
I, so I'm Nathan, just saying, um, Nathan, uh, lack can you of, go lack get a of, drink while lack I of saltiness dies tonight. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, lack of subtlety. Um, so, so Nathan, uh, similar yes. question to you. I I already know, and and frankly, don't care what you think about John Carpenter, <laughs> but I would like to know. <laughs> but I would like Woo! to know what you um, thought of this film. Had you seen this before, or like, what was your general experience? or exposure to it before this? Uh, no. Um, I, I, while I didn't know with a hundred percent certainty that we would end up back, um, in the carpenter zone, you know, a lot of these more classic things, I tend to just hold off, um, anticipating that probability. Um, and this, this no different there. And, and yeah, I, What's really interesting to me about John Carpenter is I feel like I feel like no matter what you are kind of thinking it might be going in, it's always a little a little different, a little a mm-hmm. little more unique. Uh, like remind me, so it's the thing, Halloween, they live, and what was the fourth one we did? The fog. The fog. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, e- even I, my recollection being what it is. Um, I don't remember like loving they live or the fog, but, but still, you know, kind of enjoying what they were after in a general sense, uh, mm-hmm. grenades in a backpack. That's where that began. Yeah, uh, that's right. Low, right. low those many years ago. So, <laughs> so no, I, I enjoyed this. Um, it's cool seeing Sam Neill and stuff, uh, especially mm-hmm. wildly kind of post Jurassic park. I don't know. Carpenter just has this like, he he threads this needle between, you know, quote unquote quality and B movie. If that makes any sense, yeah, it's got no, this I, kind yeah, of sensibility that. to it that that doesn't take away. It's just kind of interesting. Um, for I'll frame it this way: for movies like Halloween and The Thing, being, I think, if I'm reading the uh, cinema history room correctly, being pretty significant works. Uh, not no just in his particular filmography, but just cinematically period. It's just fascinating too, to have this whole kind of second category of, of stuff that while not monumental is still interesting. And I, I kind of dig that. So uh, just by way of affirmation of what you're saying. So two things, first of all, you mentioned Halloween and the thing by and large, uh, pretty much any, if you were to just randomly Google search best horror films of all time, like just, just a, a wide swath of different opinions and, and polls taken and, and categories and everything. Uh, most likely John Carpenter with Halloween and the thing is going to be the only director represented twice in the top 10. Most of the best lists that I've seen include somewhere in the top 10, Halloween, the first Halloween and the thing. And, uh, and I think John Carpenter is a bit, by himself in that distinction you know toby hooper's texas chainsaw massacre might rate higher exorcist is certainly going to be on there wes craven's nightmare on elm street might be up there uh several things but only like one from those directors whereas carpenter would have both of those you said something that i think is really astute and worth uh just just taking another beat for is that he does kind of cross this line between sophistication and b-movie and i think he makes a good doorway for people whose sensibilities lean in that direction. Like they talk a lot in ways that I don't really love about like elevated horror. I don't really sure. love that. I, I, I don't like that term. I don't think that's necessarily a, a classifiable situation, but 
I think there is a certain sophistication that has emerged in the horror genre that does present itself with more rapidity than it used to. And what's great is I feel like if you are a big fan of campy, cheesy B-movie horror stuff, John Carpenter is great for that crowd who maybe want to put their eye towards something that's more sophisticated, something that's more thoughtful, something that's more masterfully executed craft-wise. Most of his stuff has that sort of entryway. So if you like campy B-movie stuff, you're going to enjoy him and you're going to get into that. The reverse is also true. If you only really appreciate, well, I like horror that's more sophisticated and everything like that, most, maybe not all, but most of Carpenter's films are going to give you that flavor while also a window into, but this is campier, this is a bit more B-movie, this is a, a bit more uh, sort of that that fun and, and outrageous kind of frivolity. Uh, and I do love that he sits at that, uh, at that intersection. I also have to say, in terms of the amount of horror films that he's made and the amount of them that are quite strong, he gets my pick for like probably the greatest horror director ever. Other people have maybe made more singular significant works. Obviously, Exorcist is a favorite film of mine. So sure, you could maybe point to one where it was like, well, that was a significantly more important film. Yeah, you're probably right. But when you look at the body of the work, easily a dozen films that you could point to and be like, this is top shelf stuff. This is great, great stuff. And I don't know of too many more directors who have that much where it hits the target that it's after consistently like John Carpenter does. So I, uh, he would be my pick well, for greatest horror director. Wow. Well, okay. Well, Hey, yeah. coming in hot. I like it. Yeah, um, right. in the spirit of that, like what, how do you, um, do let's do this. Why don't you answer the question I'm about to ask you and then give a brief summary of in the mouth of madness. Uh, okay. I, I feel lately we've unintentionally omitted that kind of thing. And I think it is helpful at least, uh, okay. uh in mm-hmm. a cursory fashion. And then we'll go into that. Ain't right. Does that sound okay. Yeah. So, great. I'm I'm curious from you uh, as a segue into at least a a brief read uh, summary of in the mouth of madness is how how do you appreciate this particular film in in his oeuvre in his canon? I love it. Uh, I mean, if I were to, I haven't drafted one yet. I'm sure I will at some point. Uh, if I were to make a top ten, I'm sure in the mouth of madness would be on it in terms of carpenter's uh, carpenter's work. Um, I, I I love it. I will say this. In the Mouth of Madness is not John Carpenter's last film as a director, but I think by and large, most people agree that it is his last great film as a director. Uh, Vampires has its fans, um, and uh, and I, I think Village of the Damned has its fans, but In the Mouth of Madness is the last John Carpenter film that pretty much everybody agrees this is a great, strong film. And I love it. Um, I, I, I think, especially revisiting it, was a real treat for me um, just to get to see... Uh, remember moments I had forgotten how jumpy it is, which I'm sure we'll get to. I had forgotten like, Oh, there's quite a few like real startles in it that, that, that uh, had me surprised by way of brief summary, the film walks this really, really interesting line where it's very high concept, but also pretty direct uh, at the same time. Yeah. I don't yeah, quite I'll, know how I, it does that. I'll agree with that. And in fact, to your point, uh, sorry to interrupt the summary yeah. before it begins. It took me a minute to even understand what is, what is the story. And then yes, once you're yeah, in it, sure. you're like, Oh, well, this is actually pretty pretty basic plot right right which is yeah kind of interesting yeah but again really high concept uh the uh so basically sam neill plays an insurance investigator so he investigates fraudulent claims for an insurance company and in just one of the cases that he's put upon um a 
best-selling novelist has vanished. And so his publishing company are trying to locate this best-selling novelist. It's a fictional novelist by the name of Sutter Kane. And the people who read and are fans of Sutter Kane in this film are fans to a rabid, almost religious degree. And so uh, Sam Neill's character begins to expose himself to Sutter Kane's works. It begins to get inside his head a little bit. And then he and the editor, Sutter Kane's editor for the publishing house, the pair of them travel to a what they deemed originally to be a fictional town called Hobbs End. Uh, but they were like, wait a second, this town doesn't exist. And he's like, well, no, I think it's a real place uh, in uh, Delaware, I think it was. I forget exactly the state that they were located in. And I didn't write it down. But um, uh, Delaware, New Hampshire, somewhere in, the, uh, in, in New England. Um, they said, like, no, lo- we can travel to this location and we'll find uh, what used to be called this town. And by doing so, they kind of cross over into the actual fictional works of Sutter Kane as if those works were real stories and, and, and had really happened in this place. And so it becomes this blend of what is real and what is not. I think the tagline at one point for the film was, have you lived any good books lately? Uh, wow. So it, it, it becomes this kind of meld of fiction and imagination and what's real and what's not. Um, and that is the basics of the plot. It uh, goes to some more apocalyptic places as the as the story progresses. But yeah, that's the basics of the premise, as it were. And I find that really compelling. I find it very interesting as a concept. Um, Dave, any any responding thoughts to uh, read sharing there before we go into the night, right? About how it fits. Well, just the... kind of your your general take on the plot and the conceit. Oh yeah, I I mean I had a similar kind of experience. I mean, you come into it, and it is a. Um, I mean, you get that sense of a, a simple plot, but then um, I know for me, like the questions that were arising as the film was going on, just as mm. far as like you know what's what's real, what's fiction, how that plays into um, like there's a lot of themes that get keep getting pulled out, like the continued. Um, raising about seeing and not seeing right. um uh, you know there's a theme about loneliness um that all plays into these larger questions uh, certainly the religious um undertones play into mm-hmm. that as well I, I mean i think i mean i think it would be very easy too to pull a lot from this film and apply it to our our present day even sure um, mm-hmm. with a lot of stuff that's going on so yeah no i i appreciate that thought and and kind of as a um at least brief stopgap to thematic notions gentlemen listeners it is time once more for that part of the show where we talk about not just things from this film that are wrong but fellas things of which might be said that ain't right sure as hell ain't right all right so this is in fact a john carpenter movie and all its attendant nastiness uh (laughs) dave looking at your list i'm gonna let you start maybe depending on how we're feeling maybe two each maybe one each we'll see but but why don't you start what tops your list 
Like if you, if you only doing one, what tops your list of that ain't right for this movie? Well, I, I wrote down a, a, a single word, but it captures about a multiple <clears throat> scenes, I think. And that's uh, heads. He's got a fascination with heads. Mm. Um, the uh, <laughs> contortionist. Um, I think the one that really got me, though, was the painting. Um, oh, like man. That, I was not expecting that. And I literally, um, <laughs> that's the one that literally made me jump. Uh, <laughs> I did not, I whatever wherever my head was i wasn't anticipating that <laughs> happening in that scene and i'm like what on earth is going on <laughs> and then I, uh, by the time we got to like you know the backwards demon heads and the uh peeling I mean, back that one head. <laughs> yeah yeah that that one would have topped my list when styles is caressing the back of setter kane's noggin and that's, yes yes reed you you made a reference to f-bombs earlier that that's effed up <laughs> so well and it's actually so a bad. pretty um it's a pretty deft camera move because you kind of don't know it's there you're seeing kind of her kind of full frame she i think she's kissing him or something and his kind of side of the face when the camera pulls back mm. to reveal the back of his head has this uh, um, what was the name of the malignant monster? <laughs> Gabriel. Gabriel. <laughs> like a good, yeah. There's a protrusion at the back. There it begins. Oh my gosh. That, uh, not for nothing would have topped my list as well. That, that whole thing at the, at the, just that one shot where it just moves around and it's just, it's so gross and it's all practical. So it's all really there. And it's so disgusting. It's so gross. It's just, yeah. Blech. Nathan, what, what's next? What's on your list? Hmm. Let's see. There's there's a there's a bunch. Like oh, man. a bunch of there's a bunch of little things. Um well don't take a bunch of little things until I get no, 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 I was I wasn't. I'm yeah. simply saying there are a bunch of little things. So I stumbled on a phrase that I'm gonna apologize ahead of time for. Um but similar to thank you, Jacob saying Tolkien cellar door and uh, uh, a companion phrase to dumpster juice. <laughs> oh god, even just saying it. <laughs> repulses me um in this movie late in it uh we have a a moist door that's a gross phrase that's a gross thing on screen and just the kind of pulsing just undulating moist door in the background of these scenes it's not it's it's (laughs) i mean that ain't right (laughs) just ain't right so ain't right (laughs) it's so gross it's just it's a it's it's a singular sort of thing but it's representative of a lot of just nasty in this movie that's so nasty it's so nasty um i certainly could cite more than one thing but if it played out that i was only got to cite one thing it would be anything and everything revolving around the one and only mrs pickman Francis mm. Francis Bay, that wonderful, adorable actress. I am sure that she is just uh, that that she was just a delight to be with on set. She seems like she would be really sweet and kind. Uh, but yeah, she that when it pans down and that woman's got her naked husband handcuffed to her ankle. Now that ain't right. That, that ain't right. That ain't right. And then and then from there you see later that woman got like tentacles growing out somewhere just going everywhere while she's hacking and slashing said handcuffed naked dude to the man it's it's so awful it's it is just 
it epitomizes that ain't right. It's yeah, it's it, it's added to the subscription to that ain't right plus. It is, <laughs> it, is it has been it has been escalated. Uh, Mrs. Pickman is uh, is now a featured selection on that ain't right plus. It is well, I am I am putting in our. I think I just put it in there. You can check the Zoom chat. Um, a screenshot that John Carpenter posted uh, oh, on his on this? his on his Instagram. Um, if you don't follow John Carpenter on Instagram, you should go check it out because apparently at San Diego Comic-Con, which is about to happen, there is a life-size version of oh, the I did see this. Yes. Miss Sickman. It is oh, nasty. Oh my gosh, it's so and gross. It's exactly what you're talking about, Reed. Oh so, my yes, gosh, it's I just so put gross. that in our chat so y'all can look at it. But yes, listener, go check out John Carpenter's Instagram. Oh, see that. So gross. I mean, and just in general, the the kind of makeup effects are pretty strong. I'm thinking specifically of uh, the little, the little girl. You're my mommy. You know what today is? Oh Mommy's my, day. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Ooh. That's nasty. That's so um, nasty. And, and I'll, I'll throw this as the last one and, and y'all can tag on another if you want to, and then we'll head out. But um, I thought in general, you know, you always have to sort of take a little bit of production value with a grain of salt, given the age and perhaps budget of the time, blah, blah, blah. But the scene one, Sam Neill is not a courteous driving buddy. Like he's just not, he is, <laughs> he's just no. sleeping the whole time. I was like, bro, you gotta, gotta contribute. Converse. Yeah. You know, Even when he yeah. is driving, he's not letting her sleep. Like, no. what's yeah, up with yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Come but, on. um, I thought it was a pretty freaky scene when she's having the visions while driving the, Oh yeah. The, the bicycler, um, or bicyclist, yeah, the cyclist. cyclist. Yeah, the cyclist yeah. Um, he's young and then he's old and then he gets hit and then he gets up and then he's not. And then she's driving, not on the road anymore. That was this, I don't know. It was, it was a pretty effective. Oh yeah. Sequence. That whole crossing, that over. whole, that whole shot of just like, it's not gross out in your face. That ain't right. But, headlights on a relatively deserted road and then you just come up on a cyclist that's unnerving like that's just a little unnerving as a, like it, they're in the middle of nowhere coming up on this cyclist it's pitch black everywhere why is this, why is this guy going but then that whole thing where it's like well he was going that way and then you keep heading the other way now suddenly he's coming at you from the other direction that's freaky yeah it's just, mm, no mm-hmm. ain't right but- I might be tempted to throw in the dream within a dream sequence too even though it uh, feels a little bit um, like it's been done before, but, um, but still like, you know, when you wake, he wakes up, but he's not really woken up. Oh, you talking about the cop on the couch mess yeah. of stuff. Ugh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That cop got on me. the couch. Yeah. <laughs> that straight up. I've seen this movie half a dozen times already. That guy, I forgot all about that movie. And I was just sitting there head, you know, AirPod headphones, Sitting there watching the movie, and it was like, oh my gosh, it was creepy, freaky. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Creepy, freaky. Creepy, freaky. freaky. Um, Any other ain't rights? Now's your chance. Speak now or forever hold the back of your demonic head. (laughs) No, mama, no. And out we go. That sure as hell ain't right. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. So I've got a question that. In the most fitting way ever, I'm going to say, it's just like dropping an itty-bitty grenade in a big old backpack. And that's, as as two quite literary folk, gentlemen, 
should we should we ban books oh that's a thing we should do <laughs> do we well, that's wow. a truth that's a thing we should do right you know this this movie is about <laughs> now <laughs> it's <laughs> i actually found it rather like to to your point dave earlier it's it's quite resonant eerily portentous of you know i don't know how the great white north is doing with this these days you 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 guys tend to look at us and just do better kind of in a general sense um <laughs> you know uh, uh we let people kill a bunch of kids with guns and you guys are the ones who tighten your your gun laws so you know you just you just you just got your your head screwed on a little tighter uh but down here you know we're talking about banning books because that's where we're at these days and so i just found it really interesting this movie and i'm, I'm being slightly jokey but really not because this is quite an egregious thing for a society to do um but the film itself about the influential power of the the film in the mouth of madness e even extends the literary notion into a cinematic one because the movie uh, the book in the film gets adapted into a film which has yeah. its own meta meta quality to it which is pretty fun and 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 cool but uh but yeah i just i, I really was this is what i meant earlier about carpenter in general is like there's this you're gonna love this word this patina of ah. kind of schlock b-moviness but that's kind of right under the surface is this pretty interesting dialogue about how we consume things, how and if those things we consume impact us, how and if those things we consume are responsible for the ways they impact us. Um, and it's just fascinating. You know, I feel like this thread of conversation comes up with semi-routine on a show for people of faith engaging the horror genre, but you know, it's just, it's an interesting conversation about what we decide is acceptable to take in or not. Anyway, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of inadvertently, I didn't mean to diatribe on my own question, but yeah, the, the launch pad is, should we ban books? But clearly that's a pretty reductive, simplistic <laughs> question, but feel free to run away uh, uh, on that as you want. Dave, as somebody, if there's anybody that I know who reads more than I do, it would be Mr. Dave Courtney. I want to hear your thoughts on this, and I have some thoughts, but I want to yield the floor to you for a second. What do, what do you feel about it? Well, my quick response would be no. <laughs> <laughs> um, your turn, Reed. I'm just I, think, <laughs> I think um, in, uh, in the court, what's interesting about the film, though, I think it, it and uh, correct me if I'm way off track on this, but as I'm watching it, I'm hearing that, like, I'm hearing the story kind of play around with um, kind of a both end question in regards to uh, what comes first, uh, whether it's them that create the book mm. or at least create the world in which this book can have power or whether it's the book that has influence over them. And like this back and forth question for me uh, is what kind of made the, the film really interesting because I, I think it also flows into, um, you know, the question about whether uh, it's the fiction in the book that's crossing over into reality or if it's someone realizing that um, this world we live in is fiction right you know in, mm. in a sense like yeah. 
this kind of back and forth lane with this question to try and tease out uh, where our involvement is in terms of the way things are and how um, these influences play into the way things are. I don't know if that makes, does that make sense? It's no, it does. Yeah. That's kind of where I found myself caught in, in terms of like parsing out the film's themes. Cause I could go in either direction and the mm. film. Um, I think the film invites <laughs> the viewer to go in either direction, but um, where it lands, I'm like, I'm not entirely sure. I think it kind of keeps it open-ended to that, um, to that degree to say that it's probably um, a relationship between the two, the two mm-hmm. things is um, how the, you know, how the book has power over them versus like, it's almost like they're creating the space where, um, uh, sorry, what was the author's name again? <laughs> Sutter Kane. Yep. Sutter Kane. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, they're creating the space for Sutter Kane to be able to kind of become this godlike figure and I mean, from there, I mean, it can branch out into how that relates. Like there's lots of comments in the film about how that translates to them essentially making this book into a a religion. And that, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that has its own implications, um, certainly. And um, yeah, that's kind of where I landed. It's kind of like yeah. this push and pull between those two worlds. Well, and I, uh, so, so by and large, I agree with your assessment of it being a real chicken and egg kind of question, but really centering around there's a relationship. Like I always found it interesting when a character, uh, the the editor character, when she says, I can't go with you because I've read the ending, you know, she's like, I, I know how it ends. So I can't go where you can go because you haven't read it. You can proceed. It raises interesting questions about, if we could, if we could know the future, and this is a very, very popular science fiction question, it's raised in a number of different and profound and thoughtful works. But it's this question of like, well, if you knew your future, would you then be able to try to change it, or would the course of action that you took in response to knowing your future inevitably cause your future? Like, it's that whole sort of determinism versus like, there's all these really, really interesting ideas about the relationship between what is written, what is set, and what we choose and how we choose it and, and what of those things, what is the relationship between those things? Now, to get a bit back into, in, in, into the central question, I think, and, and I know there was a little jokiness to it. I know there was a little sort of a, 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 a glib jab, if you will, to, to a degree of like, oh, should we ban books? Obviously, my, like Dave, my broad open question is no, we shouldn't ban books. Oh, even even the books you don't like read? Yes, even the books I don't like. I know we should not ban books. Um, but I think it points to a bigger and harder question of how do you influence an influential force? And that's a bigger, harder, more difficult question. If you have an influential force that is, not to use the word too many times, influencing something that isn't good for us, how do you counter-influence that? How do you... Uh, I found this line in, in The Mouth of Madness extremely compelling, extremely frightening. Uh, I didn't write every word down exactly as it said, but she said, um, basically, reality agrees with your point of view. And then she says, reality is just what we tell each other it is. Sane and insane 
could easily switch places if the insane were to become the majority. And uh, yeah. that whole that whole concept of reality is what we tell each other it is, I found profoundly haunting. I said, like, we've all collectively agreed that well, this and is even reality. To, to reinforce your theme there, at, I believe it's later in the bar, the, the father, he says reality is not what it used to be. And just this, mm. this notion of, yeah, I, it's even hard to articulate. Um, right. You know, the, this, this influential cascade. I, I don't know. It's, it's funny. This movie, um, the one we're discussing next week. And then even I'm thinking of, they live like, mm-hmm. um, Carpenter is interested in our susceptibility. Um, oh yes. To corrupting forces. And I mean, I don't know. It, it's like, I don't know who asks this question uh, in the movie, but someone says aloud, when does fiction become religion and are his fans dangerous? Mm. And it's just wild. Like, I don't know. It is hard to sometimes feel like, oh, Nathan, you just think you're the one in the right all the time. I mean, of course, we all think that, but like, that's hard to avoid just as humans with our own bias. But it's just wild watching large swaths of at least in this country, our citizenry and feel like the fiction has become the religion and not totally knowing what to do with that <laughs> other than just watch in horror. <laughs> if you're being right. real honest, pop, I mean, the film kind of lands on pop your popcorn, sit in the movie and laugh yourself to oblivion. Basically, once you realize that it's like, okay, there's there's no escaping this now. Like this is this is what it is. That's the 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 final beat that the film leaves us with is Sam Neill bucket full of popcorn in the movie in an empty movie theater, an otherwise empty movie theater, laughing as he watches his own deterioration play out on the movie screen. And to be clear, if you're not watching the film in the mouth of madness, he's watching the film in the mouth of madness. <laughs> it's wildly yes. meta and pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, absolutely. I, I, I think that scene in particular is what um, brings us into this full picture, right? Because as viewers, all of a sudden we're asking the question, well, I, we just watched this movie. So right, where right. does that leave us? And so mm-hmm. it, it turns the question inward to say, well, uh, it's uh, begging for a little bit of self-reflection here, which kind of pairs with um you know, Sam Neill's character, I think he's the one that says this in, in prison, he's yelling, I'm not insane. And mm-hmm. then it pans out to everybody else in the, you know, locked up in the rooms and they're all yelling the same thing. We're right. not insane. We're not insane. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden at the end of this film, it's all, it's like the camera's turning back on us in a way. Cause like, well, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there's some hard questions to ask about, um, mm. you know, my own um, my own participation in society and how I see this reality and fiction um, pulling in different directions and how to navigate that. Yeah, and there's a there's an unfortunate. I can recognize. I mean, the 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 uh, the two words that I'm going to pit against each other are. I mean, first time I ever heard this was in 
Indiana Jones, uh, when he says, you know, archaeology is the study of fact. He said, if you want truth, philosophy's down the hall. But there's this real dichotomous kind of conversation right now about fact versus truth. And that has religious implications. It has philosophical implications. It has social implications. And both of them feed into this broader picture when you ask the question, well, what is reality? So, because I, it, it's funny because I think about this a lot. Have you, I'm sure we all have, because we've all had these kinds of conversations where somebody will express a thing and they will express it optimistically. And then someone else will, tr- like, uh, they'll express a hopeful and optimistic outcome. Somebody else will express, well, you know, that may not happen. The worst may happen. And then they may express some version of, I'm just being realistic. Like, that's all I'm doing is I'm just being realistic. Conversely, the same kind of conversation can happen if somebody expresses a very uh, overtly negative outcome and uh, it, it raises questions about how realistic either one of those possibilities on the spectrum are, either the really, really hopeful thing happening or the really, really dreadful thing happening. And what is the realistic sort of position on that? I think it's very, very haunting and, and, uh, and, and crippling in a way to try to wrestle down the fact of like, it could go either way. <laughs> like uh, uh, listeners uh, probably don't uh, need to hear all of these details, but um, recently, just this week, I woke up in the morning and had severe pain because I had a kidney stone. And if you've ever had a kidney stone, listeners, you guys, un- you'll understand uh, they are not pleasant. They are intense, searing pain. And, you know, it torpedoed all of my plans for the day. My plans, uh, I had to call out sick for work. There were some other things that were supposed to happen at that time that didn't get to happen because everything got kind of waylaid by this experience that I had. And it did put me into mind where I was just like, man, I, I kind of lost a day to this bit of bad luck, to this bit of bad fortune. And, the, it, it haunts us in the ways that we can't always predict and we can't always plan for everything that could go wrong. And at the same time, the answer for some of these characters is to pick up an axe and go start chopping heads. Uh, you know, when you really get to the, you know, do you read Sutter Kane? And then, you know, just like start getting very uh, uh, nihilistic with it all, where it's just like, oh, you can go the other direction as well, where you're like, well, something bad is going to happen. You just got to wait for the other shoe to drop. Something is going to go wrong. And where we sit in that big spectrum of reality is, I think, a big part of what we have to choose. We have to choose how we're going to frame our own reality and how we're going to engage in that relationship. And that gets back to what you were saying earlier, Dave, about did okay so are we written this way or are we influencing what is taking place um and i i i think in some spectral way it's a relationship between the two it's a, ra- a relationship between the choices we make that influence things things invisible forces that are influencing us in ways we couldn't quite put our finger on and i think that that haunts us uh, to a degree, because where's the responsibility? Where's the culpability? And what is our responsibility in this big, vast subject called reality? Um, yeah, it's a 
<laughs> it's really, uh, if I can throw out, I, I'm, I'm kind of struck uh, that it's Dave here with us because what keeps coming to mind, if I'm being perfectly frank, is the never ending story. And hmm. at least in the film version there. And, and so it's really fascinating this dichotomy where I'm going to do a really poor job articulating this because it's pretty new thoughts circa 30 seconds ago where uh how do i even walk into this because what kept coming to me while you were talking reed is like what is john carpenter's picture of goodness right like how to, how mm. would john carpenter articulate uh based in the the you know what i've seen of his catalog and kind of the themes that present themselves what would he picture as a good world and or a way to manifest it and and in trying to answer that like i came up with discernment agency kind of hopefulness this kind of idea but it's really fascinating to me that agency is one of those and discernment as well but that you got in the mouth of madness which is almost this reality is going to be shaped upon you mm-hmm. uh and then the never-ending story which is you can have a hand in shaping reality. Does that make sense? Does that, does that yeah. Yeah. dichotomy mm-hmm. make sense? And how fascinating that is to me that, and think about it this way too, because, because what keeps coming back to me over and over as I just live in the world I live in and observe the things I observe is, is this, it's this weird co-mingling of hope and hopelessness, mm-hmm. meaning, mm-hmm. oh my God, the the sum total of lemmings walking off the cliff is so vast to be incomprehensible all i can really do is put my hand to the plow in my immediate vicinity yeah and and so where i'm going with that is what's fascinating is in in the mouth of madness this sweeping force though it's though it's isolated upon john trent samuel's character the the world of the story is encompassing right it, it's growing mm-hmm. in populace whereas uh, a never-ending story isolates down to atreyu and bastion like these singular individuals right. who are going to by their deeds and actions and heart and spirit begin the work of making the world right i, I don't know if that's making any sense at all but just this really fascinating dialogue about susceptibility kind of downfall uh, you know lack of agency lack of discernment i mean because you know john trent denies until he's laughing himself silly at the end denies the things are even sort of taking place in front of his eyes um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i i love i love and hate uh sutter kane at one point he says it takes its power from new readers new believers when people begin to lose the ability to know the difference between fantasy and reality, the old ones can begin their journey back. That actually, that was one of the most like striking script notes in the whole piece. I was like, that's haunting and chilling and awesome and terrifying at the same time. But I guess all I'm trying to get to is simply this. I watch stories or live in the real world and what can feel like this creeping erosion of people operating out of goodness and hopefulness towards a brighter, better, uh, and, and wrestle with what to do in the face of that, if that makes any sense at all. It, it does. Um, I know I just spoke a lot. I try to keep this next sentence kind of brief, but it comes back to that whole, like 
you asked a question about what, and I honestly don't know the answer. I would need to think about it. Uh, is like, what does John Carpenter in his films consider a good world to be? I agree with you. He's very big on agency. He's very big on basically clarity of mind and uh, a, a lot of his horror stories involve characters. Halloween kind of sits outside of this. So it's a bit of an outlier to what I'm about to describe, but a lot of his horror stories, the thing um, in the mouth of madness, uh, Prince of darkness, uh, even Christine to a degree uh, village of the damned. They all, they live most definitely involve uh, people being sort of taken over or influenced by a force beyond their control. And they were pushed into a thing uh, or sometimes absolutely taken over by a thing. Uh, and that that is what drives their choices. So I think a good world in John Carpenter's view, uh, as he shows us the horrors of a bad one uh, would be where every person has control of their own agency control of their own mind. They have all of that in clarity and can act accordingly. I really have a hard time, broadly speaking, with the ways in which certain outright fictions, outright uh, contrivances are being broadly peddled to a large degree uh, and to a large number of people as verifiable fact. That's a I, I, that is so rampant. I can't even can you, point. Can to, you restate that a little more simply? I, I was following um, you, and then I lost you. I'll try to say it this way: We are living in a time where it is very easy for a lie to take hold in the minds and imagination sure. of the populace as a pure truth. And right. and 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 uh, kind of what I was getting at is that there are so many of those things right now that I could point to that I'm not even going to start pointing to any of them because. There's at least a dozen in my pocket right now that I could look at and say, yeah, that right there is a lie and a multitude of people believe it. That over there is a lie and a multitude of people believe it um, because it is so easy right now in a number of different ways for fiction to entrench itself in the imaginations of people. And then they begin to cite it as, uh, as a real and a true thing. And, you know, there are some who would say that's the uh, the, would say that's the operation of religion as well. Um, that that basically, you know, people invent certain things, uh, cult leaders, and and if you, if you are staunch sort of anti-religious uh, sentiments in your heart, you're going to think that about basically most religions that it is a fiction which has captivated and captured the imaginations of certain people, um, and that whole subject to me is haunting for two reasons. Number one. When I see people believing and proselytizing outright fictions, but when I'm honest with myself, it is also God help me to, and I'm, I'm saying this entirely sincerely, help me to never reach the place to where my own mind has lost its ability to, to clearly discern truth from fiction, fact from falsehood, all of that, because that's the other side of the thing that I get haunted by is how susceptible am I to begin to be influenced by my own experience or my, my information stream and everything else to begin saying a thing that's not quite rooted in reality. And it's a scary thing. It's a scary subject. Um, it, it, I mean, this is a horror podcast, but it's a scary subject. Um, 
Dave, I've talked a lot. I want to hear some more of your thoughts, either on this subject or, or any others, as we probably sort of get closer to winding down. Yeah, I, I think, like, to me, and this is definitely related. I mean, it, it comes, I, I think it comes down to <laughs> trying to figure out what the problem is and what the solution is. And obviously, this film doesn't really veer towards much of a, a solution to the problem mm-hmm. um, but it does offer these kind of contrasts like i'm thinking of the uh the guy who says that uh i i was written this way there's nothing else i can do the guy who shoots himself yeah um, right. you know this is kind of seeped so far in that he's obviously in a position where he's like there's nothing else i can do like this is <laughs> the story i have to live out um but you get these like this juxtaposition, I think, of um, like the phrasing, I can't get out, it won't let it won't let me out versus the the uh, also the claims given to the uh, you know, these two newcomers saying, you know, don't let it get to you, just get out. And there seems to be this like sense of, well, there is something we can do, but it's not like if we just simply say, I'm gonna detach myself from the problem quickly realize in the film that the problem is is affecting everything and everyone Mm -hmm. right and i think that gets like when you get into the whole determinism thing versus like the the matter of the will can we change can we not change um how things are going i think what becomes clear well became clear to me in the film was that one outcome of that is that it has something real to say about um like even if you move it into the realm of faith, it has something real to say about who God is and the character of God and how we perceive that. Because um, the line is, "God's not supposed to be a hack horror writer." Well, mm-hmm. this is kind of what you end up with is is a, is uh, when you have these situations where it feels like there's nothing we can do, then we retreat to say, "Well, okay." <laughs> what is my image of, of God here? Where does this leave my image of God? Because obviously it's a, I mean, it, God is part of the horror <laughs> that's going on mm-hmm. in this story. And yet it also says like the line, the, the seat of an evil, there's a seat of an evil older than mankind and wider than the known universe. Um, mm-hmm. And that phrase seems to, suggest that there are two opposing realities two opposing potentials uh, leaving the question of if if there is agency here um then perhaps that agency is is uh, found in being able to distinguish you know exactly how do we define the evil how do we define the good and i think one of the i mean for me one of the benefits of of having a picture of faith to bring to that is that it allows me to place the evil not on humanity itself um, mm-hmm. allows me to place the evil on um, what is actually going on what's enslaved <laughs> the world and the people right um, I was I was listening to an interview with David Gushy actually um, and uh, I thought his he had something to say that I thought served like as a, a pretty good parallel because you say when you're when you're facing realities like this where this you know um things are just 
they appear to be a mess and there's this confusion between what is real and what is not real and what gets caught up in that is like the true image of god the true image of humanity the true image of creation like you've got these two opposing messages coming from both directions um and he he said that um one of the reasons why he sees Jesus as important to, to how he understands this whole kind of dynamic is that he sees Jesus as the one who is going ahead. Um, and in that sense, there is a story <laughs> that Jesus is telling, um, but it becomes an invitation to participate like in, in a story that gives us agency to be able to move in that same direction, but trusting that Jesus has gone ahead to tell <laughs> a different and better story. It's not leaving us in the mess <laughs> that, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, and, and he used the phrase, he said, Jesus has gone ahead to reclaim recreation, uh, or sorry, creation, reclaim creation. And uh, that that is what he is busy doing. So as we move ahead, um, and and imply some agency that we are living into a different image of humanity, a different image of God, a different image of creation, and we're able to distinguish between what is evil and what is good. <laughs> mm. um, mm-hmm. That kind of resonated with me. And something I want to say, just very try very briefly, as you were talking, one of the things that pinged for me it would be the height of hubris to uh, say like, oh, well, this is what all of Christ's work was about. But so much of Christ's time on earth was re- revolved around transformation. It's the, 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 the very first recorded miracle in the scriptures that Jesus Christ performs was turning water into wine. It was a transformative act. The, uh, you could extend that broader to say that so much of his time was about transforming death into life. And that's, that's what so much of Christ's work is about. And I love when you said like that there's an invitation for us to participate in that. There's an invitation for us to engage with that and, and to assist and play a part in the facilitation of the transformation from death into life. Does this mean that we, hold power beyond our means. That's not what I'm saying, but um, a participative element is present there. And um, it's, it's really interesting because I think we too little wrestle with our capacity to transform a situation in one direction or another. We either go on one side where we think we hold all the cards and then we become a bit narcissistic about it to say like, oh, well, I just need to get involved in this because I can fix it or I can turn it or I can do something else with it. Well, that's narcissism and it's ego and, and, and that unbridled is just going to be um, very destructive. At the same time, we can also take the complete polar opposite of that and be like, oh, well, it's all just going to happen. So I'm not going to worry about it. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And I'm just going to you know, do my thing. And I think health is somewhere holding those two realities in tension that I have within me and not only a capacity to to influence this to a degree, but also an invitation to participate in that influence, in that transformative influence, uh, and, and how am I going to choose 
to hold and to wield and to deploy that power, whatever it is. Maybe for some, it's a spark. Maybe for others, it's, a, it's an explosion. But for whatever it is, how am I going to choose to direct that bit of influence that I have uh, in, in participating in what will hopefully be a good and thriving and fruitful work? Um, but I think that the choice is left up to us is, is the burden of responsibility, that we have the choice to either do something that will influence things to make things better or not. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we choose in either direction sometimes, which is worth pondering. But- when it's so fascinating about that, this notion of choice and choosing and influence and, and susceptibility to sermon, all these ideas. And, you know, Dave, you were relaying the, the gushy interview stuff. I was struck by, I don't know if y'all do this sometimes, but you know, we all have those people in our lives. Uh, in my sense, it's typically colleagues. Frankly, I, I, I wish I saw more humans in my day to day than I kind of do, but you know, sometimes you'll, maybe this is just me and I'm just a weirdo, but you'll kind of play out like, how, how would I articulate what I think or, or what my guiding ethic is? Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that, that's a, that's a real, uh, uh, succinct way to put it. But I think about that a lot. Like, like, well, well, you know, as I imagine these conversations in my head, well, why don't you like, uh, you know, unfettered capitalism, blah, 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 whatever, whatever the hell thing you want to fill in the blank there with. But, um, you know, one, the word that comes to me is, and when I ask the question, maybe the, this is part of the answer. What does, what would John Carpenter reject or what would he think is, a better way of living and it's rejecting things that dehumanize. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a lot, that word came to me a minute ago as y'all were talking about, you know, Jesus's ethic and, and that what is kind of staggering and haunting to me in these present days is, is those who identify as Christian participating. It's one thing, to not know where your clothes were made and perhaps the dehumanizing processes that contributed to that. That, that. that is one thing. We are all parts of global systems that sometimes we aren't quite aware of or participate in that may contribute to dehumanization in ways that we don't, that otherwise we might not want to. So that's thing A, that's a little separate from what I'm talking about. But it's fascinating, haunting, staggering, terrifying to watch those who identify openly as Christian participate willingly knowledgeably and sometimes gleefully in dehumanizing uh behavior and attitudes right and and it's really interesting my my maybe final point for this conversation and and read i'll let you determine if that's it and take us to the fog meter or what but this whole movie and as i'm pondering the work of carpenter even maybe his work more broadly that has been identified here there's a this Sometimes, uh, uh, cause it's funny, Reed, you said not sure about Halloween, but even I was trying to, I was testing myself. Can I find it in Halloween? Like even Halloween is about this corrupting nature of negative space, right? This, this, mm-hmm. this corrosive spread of shapeless negative energy. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I keep thinking about this notion of corrosive influence steering behavior and attitude and read this came up on our 
on one of our conversations recently, the Richard Rohr definition of repentance, right. Of changing mm-hmm. one's mind right, and how powerful that is and how, and I've kind of had that in my view, but where I'm going with this is uh, my kids and I just last night, we were behind because I'd been traveling. And then one of the other kids was out of town. We finished uh, the Miss Marvel TV show and, mm-hmm. and I won't spoil any of the plot uh, for those who haven't seen it yet, but you know, the, uh, Personally, the Marvel shows have been a little middling, um, you know, some super strong, some super weak. Um, I love a lot about this show, its casting, its production, its heart, its energy, but something that I found really beautiful about it that was highly unexpected um, is just how deep the show went on the characters, Muslim and Pakistani heritage um, that becomes because I I've, I've read the Miss Marvel books for years and that's always been a sort of tentpole element of it, but there's something very different about seeing it in a televised mass media format like this. And it reminded me of the experience watching Lindelof's Watchmen and my, at the time, ignorance of the Tulsa 21 massacre. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's not quite as strongly done, but uh, the Miss Marvel show addresses clearly defines and even dramatizes a historical event in the history of the splitting of India and Pakistan called the partition, which I was totally ignorant of. And I would encourage anyone to watch this, but what was so fascinating and beautiful to me is, and I, I mentioned this to my brother today, cause we were talking about it. And this seems like a random rabbit trail. I understand, but I'm talking about influencing forces, right? And mm. There are a few more influential forces than popular culture and media in our society. Um, And I was like, you know, what is so powerful to me about this is 10, 15 years ago, and and I'm about to call myself on the carpet, Reed, and by extension, maybe you, because you and I watched the hell out of this and we loved it, but you had Jack Bauer killing all the brown people. Mm, Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the influence stuff like that has, I have a, there's a person in my life I was about to name by which uh, uh, they are part of my life, but, you know, at least attempting some sense of uh, obscuring there who I remember watched American sniper and raw, raw American sniper. And I hate American sniper, mm. but and because their takeaway was, well, that's, that's what they are like. Oh, wow. quote unquote, right. Like, yeah. like, well, wow. of course we should be doing what Chris Kyle was doing because otherwise they're going to get us. Mm. And, And I love the notion of the initial corrupting force, i.e. pop culture media being subverted later on by, in this case, actual uh, Muslim uh, voices, minority voices who, who crafted this show showing humanity, right? That's dehumanization uh, uh, fixed, corrected, um, and, and I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of left in awe. I, y'all may watch, end up watching Miss Marvel and not have that level of takeaway. I actually think it's, it is very good for the Disney Marvel shows. I don't know how well it would hold up to, you know, classically awesome television, but that aspect of it really moved me. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. yes, I even, even at ripe old 42 and i went to the eye doctor today and had some uh, some fun news because i'm getting old y'all and my eyes suck but nonetheless even at this age 
still being able to, and, and, and I, I want never to not have the capacity to repent, to change my mind. Not that Jack Bauer killing brown people influenced me bias towards brown people. I'm simply saying you've got these negative influences in the world that alter, corrupt, reinforce, <laughs> affect attitude and in affecting attitude, affect behavior to how beautiful it is to have a counter force that says, you know what? <laughs> Stuff like that is just not real. Um, mm. It's mm. fantasy that uh, uh, developed followers. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a bit now, but just this notion of influencing factors and agency plus discernment plus, you know, whatever the opposite of dehumanizing is, uh, is something I've found really interesting about in the mouth of madness and Ms. Marvel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> before we um well i th- i think those those are really profound thoughts to walk away with and i don't have any more to add to them i just want to give dave the opportunity before we travel over to the fog meter if there's anything else that we any any aspect of the film or aspect of the conversation thus far that you want to reiterate or bring up uh before we kind of close things down then i want to give you a few moments to do that and then we'll we'll fog meter it out um, I mentioned this right at the top, but um, if there was more time, I think the uh, it would be interesting to dig underneath this film because I think there are some of those humanizing moments that are littered throughout. Um, mm-hmm. And one that I really was trying to tease out was um, the because uh, the word is used a couple of times of loneliness. Like there's something about it, it like this book isn't having the power that it does simply because of the book um it's having the power that it does because of the very human people that are dealing with very human things that may or may not be seen as cl- clearly as they should be right and so that and there's that that theme of seeing also um seeing and not seeing also emerges um, in the film, uh, in some interesting ways, I think that could shed some light on, you know, what Nathan, what you were sharing, um, just on the importance of, of being able to see correctly and mm. then to be able to, um, you know, with those humanizing aspects, like, like the loneliness factor. I mean, these are the things that result in fear, right? <laughs> I think that seems to be at the root of what is going on is, is these things that kind of end up transforming into um, expressions of fear that allow these things to take hold and then to um, emerge as these dangerous fictions that then enslave us to wrong ideas about what humanity is and what creation is and even what God is like it, I mean, all of these things are, are hugely important, but I think, you know, really just to tie that in, I do think that it comes down to recognizing that humanity that lies underneath is a, is a real piece, important piece of um, the uh, potential solution <laughs> to be able yeah. to give agency uh, um, to people uh, within that in order to change the direction and change the reality, I guess. Mm. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a profoundly important work that we should set ourselves about doing to, and maybe to bring it full circle to in the mouth of madness, but hopefully put a kind of a positive spin on it is I think one of the powers uh, 
that fiction has fiction in general fiction uh writing novels uh, in any kind of that kind of work uh has the power to put us in the shoes of somebody else to humanize somebody beyond our own experiences and uh it has the power to do that it's part of what i love about it it's part of why i love you know films have that power as well um to maybe a lesser degree than 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 novels have but to be able to really get you into the experience of another person. And that is really humanizing. That's, a, that's an act of uh, generating empathy. That's a, a, a Josh Larson, a, a, a podcaster and critic, uh, wrote a book called Movies Are Prayers, talking about like, yeah, the, the, like, there's a way in which when we dig into these fictions, and I'll, I'll cite again what I've cited before, um, Stephen King called fiction the truth inside the lie. And uh, it, it's an it's an ability for us to engage with experiences beyond our own, and can have a really profound and positive influence on us uh, when rooted in good things and approached in a in a good faith way. Uh, it can can produce a lot of uh, good fruit, and uh, that is a surprisingly hopeful place to end a conversation about in the mouth of madness. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Oh man. So, uh, you guys okay if we go to the fog meter? Yep. Yep. All right. So the fog meter is our very specific, uh, metric of fear and God, wherein we rate our films and the other media that we cover on their scares and their substance. So Dave, I'm going to begin with you. I'm going to snake around through us and then come back to you to close us out, but I'm going to start uh, for you with fear, how would you rate scale of zero to 10 uh, in the mouth of madness directed by John Carpenter on the fear measurement? I'm going to go with an eight. I think there's a lot of really well-crafted scenes. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I think there are, uh, you were mentioning this at the top, like a really good fusion of jump scares and um genuine beer inducing <laughs> story beats that kind of come together and um, you can tell that, that the scenes like that they took the time on these scenes and uh, and crafted them in such a way as to like bring out genuine experience of yeah um, of beers I, I think it's pretty strong yeah yeah uh, no, I like it. Uh, I'm going to join you on the eight, actually. Um, eight feels appropriate for this. Um, it does have the potential to be to get under your skin a little bit, I think. Uh, maybe not in such a way where you know, you're going to have some trouble sleeping, although to, maybe to some with the ideas that it's speculating about, but it's definitely a strong frightener. Um, so yeah, I have uh, no qualms giving it an eight for the fear factor. What do you give it, Nathan? Um, I'm going to go with the seven. I do think the kind of grisly elements are there. Um, I think, yeah, a seven. Okay. Uh, what would you give it for the God meter? I think there's a lot going on here. Um, I, I think I intentionally knew I would hem the fear factor a little bit because I'm going to be generous here. I'm, I'm going to go with the nine. I think there's some genuine thoughtful stuff being front loaded um that i think we barely even scratched the surface on um you know so so yeah I, I don't i don't think it's overly generous to offer a nine there to uh, for myself to be completely honest the only reason i'm not giving it a 10 is because i feel like 
there are some things that the film merely points to as opposed to unpacks, um, but have no uh, reservations about joining you in your nine. Uh, there is an impulse to me that wants to give it a 10. I do feel like there's a lot on this film's mind uh, that you could engage this film in a way that would just be like, oh man, creepy, you know, pustule monsters coming up from the abyss, you know, and silly, really bad CGI paper thing while the guy is ripping it, you know, like you can engage it in the campy way, but the ideas at play in this are really striking. And if something's going to get under your skin, it's most likely going to be something like that. One of the things that the people said or did. So yeah, nine for me as well. Dave, bring us home. What do you give it for the God meter? Yeah, I think I'm going to join on the nine. I think mm. uh, the one area, if I had one critique of the film, I think it would be that I don't, I think it had a potential to really um, heighten the character of the, um, the book. What's the title? The guy, not the book manager, but like the, the person. Oh, the, who owns the publishing house? The yeah, uh, Char yeah, Charlton Heston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I forget yeah. the character's name, but Charlton Heston. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that there was a lot of opportunity to really take the um, the more supernatural aspects and really kind of bind it to the um, the more earthy aspects in terms if they had fleshed out that character and made them a little bit more complicit mm, and mm. tied him to what was going on in terms of. Uh, and I think that would have heightened the sense of, okay, this is how it all kind of connects together. But as it is, I think it brings up a lot of good questions. It might leave it in a little bit of a defeatist <laughs> position <laughs> at the end. But I think maybe that's probably part of the point. And obviously it has a way of being able to generate some really good questions. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that means that we give In the Mouth of Madness from John Carpenter an eight and a half on the fog meter. Um, which I think is a really strong showing for it. And uh, Nathan, I'm going to go with you first and we'll end with Dave. Nathan, would you recommend In the Mouth of Madness? I do. I found myself uh, kind of uh, driving on it a little more than I expected. So yeah, I do. Awesome. Awesome. I also wholeheartedly recommend it. Like I said, I think in Carpenter's filmography, if you're just kind of making your way through, hey, what should I hit and what should I skip? Uh, in the Mouth of Madness is not a skip. It's, it's definitely a high mark in his catalog for me and I recommend it. Dave, what about for yourself? Yeah, definitely recommend it. I I didn't uh, know what I was in for when I started it. I knew nothing about it, so <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised, and I was really kind of taken in by the theme. So that's awesome. No, that's great. Well, uh, that puts this conversation in our new uh, stream going through Stranger Things and uh, and and John Carpenter Redux, as it were. I meant to mention this earlier in a more trivial didactic way, and then I'll mention it at the ending. Did anybody else catch old Anakin Skywalker in the movie? Anybody else? I didn't, anybody I didn't else it? watching it, but I did reading yep. stuff after the fact. I had completely forgotten, and when I saw it, the kid on the bicycle uh, towards the end of the film talking to Sam Neill, I was looking, I was like, that kid looks a lot like Hayden Christensen. And then sure enough, I looked it up. I was like, oh, that's because it is Hayden Christensen. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's interesting. Um, can you, can you answer this one question for me on a trivial bit? Yeah, sure. Did, I can try. Was there a connection between the Hobbs End and Stephen King? You know, um, like that, I'm a, that I'm aware of? No. That I'm aware, not, uh, not an intentional one that I'm aware of. Okay. I, I don't know why I was thinking there was like something stuck out there for me as far as like 
felt like this was a call out to Stephen King. I don't know if it ah. was it in New England. Well, it I wasn't. Did, I, did, I did read that Hobbs End is meant to be a bit of an analog for like Derry, um, mm. Castle Rock type of idea. Uh, you know, this, this town where mischievous malevolence. Yeah, where a lot of e- yeah, a lot of evil and wickedness were centralized. I don't think the name Hobbs End has any specific uh, Stephen King. Uh, resonances but yes definitely like the presence of such a town is something that stephen king is pretty um pretty known for he does that a lot whether it be castle rock or dairy um anything to that end now one thing we didn't mention and this is a good segue into next week this film is actually the third in a loose thematic trilogy that john carpenter did it's called the apocalypse trilogy um it begins with the thing It ends with In the Mouth of Madness, and the middle film in that trilogy is next week's installment, and that is his film from 1987, Prince of Darkness, uh, starring Donald Pleasance of uh, Halloween fame uh, and several other things that he's done. But in the John Carpenter world, he was previously in Halloween. Um, And so Prince of Darkness is our film for next week. Also, for the patrons, you're going to want to check out Stranger Things Season 4, Episode 2, for a conversation about that for the patron segment. But Dave, thank you so much for joining us for In the Mouth of Madness. It's been a lot of fun. Honestly, it has been a real treat to revisit this film and talking about it just elevated that treat all the more uh, in a way that I really appreciate. So thank you so much for being a part of that, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. No, anytime, anytime. Nathan, as always, thank you so, so much. Uh, Listeners, as always, thank you for hanging with us. And as we say on every episode, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. In that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thank you, Dave. See you guys. Yeah. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media and episode archive, essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of TracerMatula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everybody.